Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we look at Jung's concept of the archetype and the implications it holds for our inner lives. It's the human soul. That's the very treasure. The mere use of words is futile when you do not know what they stand for. This is particularly true in psychology, where we speak of archetypes like the anima and animus, the wise man, the great mother, and so on. You can know all about the saints, sages, prophets, and other godly men, and all the great mothers of the world. But if they are mere images whose numinosity you have never experienced, it will be as if you were talking in a dream, for you will not know what you are talking about. The mere words you use will be empty and valueless. They gain life and meaning only when you try to take into account their numinosity, their relationship to the living individual. Only then do you begin to understand that their names mean very little, whereas the way they are related to you is all important. This is a long quote, but I wanted to include the whole thing because It describes what I think is an essential attitude in the practice of the symbolic life. That is, a willingness to have a living encounter with the archetypal depths of the psyche. I'll say that again. A willingness to have a living encounter with the archetypal depths of the psyche. Now, there's a lot packed into just that statement. And to be honest, it would probably take many episodes to really do justice to the breadth of all that is implied by it. But I want to see if we can at least sketch the beginnings of an answer to two questions raised by this statement. And they are, what are the archetypal depths of the psyche? And what does it mean to have a living encounter with them. The concept of the archetype is one of the foundational ideas of Jungian psychology. It can be understood as a kind of instinct 
though it's more complex than that, and we should be careful not to think of it merely in terms of a behavioral reflex. One of the major problems with the concept of the archetype is that it's impossible to give a precise description or definition of it. Jung speaks of archetypes as the structural elements that make up the human psyche, in that they make psychological experience possible. But what they are in and of themselves is unknown and unknowable. We only know them by the effects they have on our experiences in both the inner and the outer worlds. One way to understand archetypes is as a kind of readiness for a particular configuration of behavior, emotion, image, and response. The psyche, we could say, is ready to respond to typical situations in typical ways. And the metaphor that the Jungian analyst Edward Whitmont uses is that of field activities. He takes the example of a magnetic field, which cannot be seen and which we might not even know is there until we observe the effects that it has on, say, iron filings that arrange themselves according to the pattern of the otherwise invisible field. Just so with the psyche. The archetypes are energy fields of sorts. That is, they are a specific pattern of psychic energy. And the field activities that they give rise to are those things I mentioned before, behaviors, emotions, images, and other responses. These things make visible the pattern particular to the archetype in question. Archetypes, writes Whitmont, are typical energy configurations which are activated by situations and problems, both outer and inner, by people, emotional conflicts, maturational needs, etc. They impress their force patterns upon the totality of happenings within their scope. And then he adds a crucial point. The objective psyche exists independently of our subjective volition and intent. In other words, an archetypal experience is something that happens to us. Like the weather, we do not make it and we do not control it. But we must learn how to effectively meet it and respond to it to both benefit from the generative possibilities that it brings into our lives and to mitigate any potential damage that it might bring in its wake. To try to make this concept a little clearer, let's take the example of the mother archetype. The experience of the mother and of mothering is a universal human experience, right? Human beings come into the world with a readiness for mothering in all its various expressions. And these expressions are countless. 
the archetypal field of the mother does not just point to the experience of the personal or biological mother. It includes all those things that are experienced as nurturing and nourishing, comforting and soothing. It's the energy of containment and safety, attachment and unconditional love, embodiment, earthiness, and fertility. The mother is that which brings things to birth or is fiercely protective of its own. And we could go on adding to this list, but for the sake of completeness, it's important to also recognize that in its darker expressions, the mother archetype includes all those things that thwart or frustrate or withhold the qualities we've mentioned so far. The mother archetype is active and can be encountered in many different contexts. Not only mothers, but fathers too can embody this energy, as can partners, teachers, friends, and many others. It can also be found in institutions like the church, which in the Catholic tradition is often given the name Our Lady, or a university such as one's alma mater. Food often gets infused with mother energy, as when we turn to it for comfort, and so does something as common as watching TV in the dark while wrapped up in the womb of a blanket. Again, I could go on and on. And it's important to emphasize here that it's not the experience of one's personal mother that gives rise to the mother archetype. It would be more correct to say that it's the archetype that prepares us for our experience on the personal plane. Now, to be sure, our personal experience of being mothered will impact how we experience the archetype, which aspects get amplified, which get diminished, whether it has a primarily positive or negative coloration to it, etc. But the archetype is primary. And as I've already pointed out, it is much more comprehensive than just the individual family situation. Remember, an archetype in itself is unknowable. It's an invisible field that is only known by its effects. Jung states very clearly that we do not inherit specific ideas or images, but rather the possibility of the emergence of ideas and images. Another way to say this is that the archetypal field can only be known by consciousness when it finds its expression in a symbol. To be technically correct, then, we could say that there is no mother archetype, per se. There is an archetypal energy that tends to get expressed through the use of mother symbols an energy that we readily associate, for obvious reasons, with the image of the mother. We call it 
the mother archetype as a convenient shorthand because that is how it tends to appear to our conscious minds. But we shouldn't think we've understood something because of the name that we've given it, right? As Jung states in our opening quote, the mere words you use will be empty and valueless. They gain life and meaning only when you try to take into account their numinosity, their relationship to the living individual. Only when we have a definite and living experience of the energy, when we are emotionally involved in it, can we say that we know something about it. The name itself means very little. Throughout his work, Jung is constantly asserting that experience of something is more important than a mere intellectual understanding. Archetypes should not be approached simply as ideas for us to grasp, but should instead be encountered as what he evocatively calls pieces of life. Knowing about archetypes is not the task. Rather, says Jung, we must take into account their numinosity, which means recognizing these energies as a kind of other to whom we need to come into relationship. And this means meeting such experiences with our full emotional presence and trying to gain a sense of and a respect for their autonomy. In the collection of Indian fables and folk tales known as the Panchatantra, there is a story called The Gold-Giving Snake that speaks to the importance of acknowledging these numinous pieces of life and of taking up a right relationship to them. So I want to share here the first part of this tale. And it goes like this. In a certain place, there lived a Brahmin by the name of Haridatta. He tilled the soil, but his time in the field brought him no harvest. Then, one day, as the hottest hours were just over, tormented by the heat, he lay down in the shade of a tree in the middle of his field for a sleep. He saw a frightful snake, decorated with a large hood, crawl from an anthill a little way off, and thought to himself, This is surely the goddess of the field, and I have not once paid her homage. That is why the field remains barren. I must bring her an offering. After thus thinking it over, he got some milk, poured it into a basin, then went to the anthill and said, O protector of this field, for a long time I did not know that you live here. For this reason I have not yet brought you an offering. Please forgive me. 
Having said this, he set forth the milk and went home. The next day he returned to see what had happened, and he found a dinar in the basin. And thus it continued day by day. He brought the snake milk and always found a dinar there the next morning. At the start of this story, we find a condition of lifelessness. The Brahman, Haridatta, has a field, but nothing will grow in it. It's an image of psychological lifelessness, a deadness of the spirit. It's only when Haridatta sees the snake that he realizes there is a dimension of life that he has been missing. He recognizes the snake as the goddess of the field, and this is when everything starts to change. In the psychological language that we've been using in this episode, we could say that the Brahman becomes aware of the presence of a powerful archetype. The snake as goddess of the field, of course, is a symbol of the mother archetype. She is, in fact, the great mother, which is to say, she is life. It is she who gives birth to things, who is the mysterious power that transforms the seed into the living stalk of wheat or the rice plant, she is that force of nature who performs her works of herself without the intervention of human consciousness. Psychologically, then, she could be said to represent the unconscious, that mysterious matrix from which all psychological experience arises. When Herodata acknowledges the snake goddess and brings her an offering, she leaves him a gold dinar. To be in touch with an archetype is to have access to a storehouse of life energy, here imaged as a source of wealth, a dinar, which is a version of the famous motif of the treasure hard to attain which symbolically understood means a source of meaning, purpose, and aliveness. To be in relationship with an archetype requires acknowledging that there are sources of power and energy that lie outside of our will and our consciousness. It is essential that we learn to recognize that life, which includes our psychological life, proceeds of and by itself. We are clearly not the makers of all that happens to us, either within or without. And if we are not aware or cannot acknowledge the autonomous activity of the creative unconscious, we lose contact with a vital source of life energy. And like the field of the Brahman, 
who's not aware of the presence of the goddess, the fields of our emotional, creative, or relational lives may grow barren and dry. So what does it mean to enter into relationship with these archetypal energies and and to have a living encounter with them? Well, with this question, we come to our takeaway for this episode. Jung speaks of experiencing the numinosity of the archetypes, which means, as I said, being able to experience them as autonomous others, something that confronts us with its own volition and intent, one that is often felt as being at odds with ours. This is difficult for us today because we've lost much of our ability to engage in a mythological imagination. This kind of imagination requires bringing to such encounters what I call in my book experiential consciousness, a kind of suspension of disbelief, as well as a, a visceral involvement with our own inner experiences. Establishing a relationship with an archetype, above all, means gaining separation and distance from it. For a relationship is only possible between two separate entities. Until a relationship is established, we are identified with the emotional field of the archetype, stuck in it, bound up with it, and unable to gain a foothold outside the situation. A relationship means both separation and involvement at the same time. And I can only touch on this aspect of the issue here, but this is something that I'll address in more detail in a future episode. So when we're able to approach these inner others with an experiential consciousness, we make possible a living understanding of them. And Jung puts it this way, it confers life and effectuality upon them. Hate and love, fear and reverence enter the scene of the confrontation and raise it to a drama. What has been merely displayed becomes acted. The whole person is challenged and enters the fray with one's total reality. This is not easy going. And as Jung implies here, the point is not always to approach an archetypal experience with kindness and trust. It's not without meaning that the goddess of the field in our story appears as a snake. This is, of course, an ambivalent image. She is life, yes, but life also includes the reality, and the danger of death. And this death-dealing dimension of the archetype will show up later 
in the same story, pointing to the danger of disrespecting or otherwise trying to exploit the archetype for our own purposes. Love may not always be required, but respect is crucial. And here's the thing. Relationships make us vulnerable. This is certainly true of relationships with the important people in our lives, and it's true as well of the others that dwell in our own psyche. And this is why I said earlier that it takes a willingness on our part to have a living encounter with these archetypal depths. Such an encounter means giving up the illusion of control or dominance over the activity of the psyche. It means bringing humility, imagination, and even a sense of reverence to these deep and often private experiences. And most of all, it means taking our inner lives seriously. And perhaps this starts when, like the Brahman in our tale, we begin to recognize that we have neglected something real and life-giving, something wholly other than our ego, yet at the same time closer than our own breath. And like him, perhaps we too will be moved to say, for a long time, I did not know that you live here. And for this reason, I have not yet brought you an offering. Please forgive me. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening.